Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Father, praise is befitting of you um, because you are just and holy and righteous. There is not any filth or shadow of turning with thee. Father, you are entirely good. And so, Father, um, as we talk today about injustice and unrighteousness and wickedness and um, the evil in our own hearts, God, would you um, turn us to yourself, not in fear of judgment, but in anticipation of your grace, knowing that by your mercy we can escape the wrath to come and the wrath that we rightly deserve. And so, Father, um, would you um, make us... um, have an appetite for Jesus and a longing for Him. And may He be clear. And God, would you just um, use the book of Ecclesiastes to um, cause our hearts to desire gospel realities. And so, Father, uh, this is your time. Come pastor your people. Uh, be the shepherd. Um, break open hard hearts like us that we might be able to receive your word and to be changed and to go live your word in a wicked and evil generation. Um, God, turn us by your grace. We pray today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Um, Welcome to church. Um, It is obviously uh, some of you people's favorite holiday season of the year. And I don't mean Halloween or Reformation Day um, or All Saints Day or whatever you're trying to celebrate on uh, the Christian calendar. But I'm talking political season. It's your time. It's that other Halloween, super scary, lots of kind of like daytime drama with character assassinations kind of put mingled in the middle, all right? I have been watching, and I don't, anybody seen the political commercials or am I the only one here? Y'all seen these? It's wild out there, y'all, and you see these commercials and it, it just, it's interesting, all right? When I was a kid, the first politician, one of the first politicians that I remember was Ross Perot. Anybody remember Ross Perot? Um, yeah, yeah, big ears, made me identify with him, okay? And he was going to give everybody a pony. I remember sitting, watching the commercials, being like, this dude's giving ponies away? How are we not voting for Ross Perot? All right? And then I kind of got older and started to watch political campaigns and political things and even get like start to believe the commercials it's like you hear the campaign promises and you're like this guy's gonna fix everything right like he just throwing things out there and we base who we vote for off their promises right they're they're putting these promises out there then as I got even older I started to notice that not everybody delivers on those promises and you get jaded. And have, have you ever felt tempted not to vote? And to feel like, I, like this is, to, stay with me here for a minute. This is so bad that literally what will my vote fix? Like you look at the problems inside the institution and you're like, they, there ain't no people we're voting that's going to fix this. And you get jaded, Right? Because you got so hyped that you put a a yard sign in and you bought the t-shirt and you donated online. And then your expectations and hopes fizzled out like a cheap firework. And then you just, and and I feel like our elections are just far enough apart that we forget that so that we get hyped for the next candidate. Right? And I just want to know where all those t-shirts go for the loser. Like there's some kid in Africa Right now, that got donated a Hillary or Ross Perot shirt. And they're just rocking it right now. It's like the losing Super Bowl team. We just give those shirts away to third world countries. And we just feel terrible, right? Because it didn't deliver. We pin these hopes and fears and, and we get let down because these promises are maybe what the book of Ecclesiastes might call meaningless. Vanity vapor. I say that today because today we're going to look at the the problem 
secular people are going to have with injustice and with trying to fix injustice under the sun with places and institutions and seats of power that are under the sun as well. And, and you're just going to come up empty. And so um, here's the deal. So we're going to kind of into places here. It's going to talk about government and courts and institutions. And oftentimes our institutions, our systems, our organizations can become gardens that at their best grow weeds. And so Solomon is going to dive into that. But before maybe I get into verse 16 through chapter 4 verse 3, I need to set a little context of where we've been because verse 16 starts with the word moreover. What that is meaning is there's a transition here happening and he's wanting to build what he's going to say today off of what we talked about last week. And so just to jog a little bit, we looked at chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And it opened with a bird song, right? From the 60s, for every season. Turn. Turn, turn. See, I intentionally messed it up so that you... I'm not singing it, alright? For you druggies from the 60s. Right? But it's for everything. There's a season. God wrote, wrote a top pop song which creates theological problems. And he says there's, there's just a time for everything. And we talked about this idea of a difference between time and seasons, that the Bible has two different words. Like one is like minutes, days, hours. The other is like seasons, like the fullness of time, like the right timing. And, and the, it gets into this. There's a time to laugh and a time to mourn, a time to cast away and a time to throw away things, right? Which is the ultimate hoarder verse, which my wife doesn't interpret the same way that I do, right? It's like, if I put it in our vernacular, I would say something like this. There's a time for a stock market crash, and there's also a time for, like, new building developments. There's time for baby gifts, and there's time for funeral arrangements. Like, there's time for war in Europe, and there's time for new medical discoveries. There's a time for best man speeches, and there's a A time where you have the right to remain silent. Like, for every season, the Bible is going to say that God has made everything beautiful in its timing. The problem is that by grace, we don't move to God's timing. We got an issue with God's timing. So it's kind of like this. All of us that are parents in here, one of the things that we're trying to do with our kids is disciple them... When is the appropriate time to do things, and when is the inappropriate time to do things? Amen? Like, this is not an appropriate space and time for you to do this. So we're trying to disciple them that way. At the same time, our wives are discipling us by elbowing us in the ribs. Men. Right? So, there's this idea of appropriateness. There's not just like a a right thing to do. Now, some things are right in all seasons, but there's, there's like not only right things to do, but there's right timing to do it. And so we kind of launched into how different we are from Jesus because it's like we just struggle with time. We don't manage it well. We sit around and kill time thinking we're not injuring eternity. And, and yet what we see in Jesus is a perfection of timing like Jesus was always on time Jesus was born exactly on time he lived 30 years in obscurity by the way fulfilling the Old Testament law of submitting to his family but just at the right time he started his public ministry he was at the wedding at just the right time when they run out of wine for all my Baptists in here that's theologically problematic but it's in your Bible He came to John the Baptist at just the right time to be baptized. He met his would-be disciples at just the right time. Amen? He preached to many just when they needed to hear it. He defeated the lies of the enemy at just the right time. He comforted so often in the New Testament those at just the right time. He didn't just have the right word. 
to say, but he had the perfect timing to say it. He arrived just in time to meet the demoniac on the other side of the sea. He passed through the crowd at just the right time to meet the woman with the issue of blood. He went through Jericho and met Bartimaeus at just his right time. He met Nicodemus at just the right time of night. Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha thought he was late to save their, their brother Lazarus, but he was just on the right time to raise him from the dead. He arrived at festivals that were in Scripture, according to Scripture, at just the right time. He died at just the right time. He rose, according to Scripture, at just the right time. And church, he's coming back just on time. If you are a Christian here, some of us would say that if we would have met Jesus at a different time in our story, we might not have surrendered to him. And if you're a lost person in here today that has never put your faith in Christ, right now is your time. Don't wait for another. And so we just, we see a perfection of timing in Jesus that we just, we, we struggle with in our own walks. Isn't it something that we pray all the time? Not my will, but your will be done. And doesn't sometimes when God answers our prayer, he sometimes says yes, he sometimes says no, and sometimes doesn't he say not right now? He's not saying no forever. He's just saying if I gave it to you right now, it might ruin it. Has anybody prayed and seen God answer like that? And so there's a, there's a timing thing going on. And, and we have to be able to read the season of life that we're in. And if we fail to do so, and we don't see the cards that God has dealt us, we're not going to play them rightly. And we're going to end up wearing, as I said, flip-flops in the snow. Because it's just, we're, we're, we're not moving to God's timing. So here's a big summary of what's going on. First part of chapter 3. God is sovereign over time. You know who's not? You. And doesn't that, that bothers us. That frustrates us. Our proud hearts buck to the idea that God is limiting our sovereignty in place of his own. That he is sovereign over time in ways that we aren't. That it's beautiful in what he does in time and in space. And it's really ugly what we do with it. So, here's the, here's the thing that we're just, we're just messing with all the time. We are either trying to skip seasons and not be present now, or we're trying to reminisce, hold on to the past, and not be present. And in the middle of that, the scripture says in chapter 3, he's put eternity in our hearts. That is, we're longing for the everlasting. Matter of fact, I made this as an apologetic argument last week. And I love to talk about, not, about this with non-believers. We have, the scripture says we have eternity in our hearts. Which means every one of us fools are walking around today believing that we're living forever. Because we were created to live forever. Now, you and I know that if we pass the graveyard on the way out, none of us are making it out alive. We all in here, I think we're pretty clear. I mean, it's, it's 2022. Who knows what we believe in here? But we're all going to die. You know that, right? But you don't believe it's today. Why? Why do you not believe it's today? Because you have eternity bound up in your heart. You long for stuff that's not under the sun. You longed for eternity. You were created for eternity. And yet death has come as this frustrating reality that causes you to not enjoy at all. To not enjoy your drinking and eating and your toil. So, if, um, if we struggle with our kids growing up and we struggle to be present in this moment, it, there's this uh, French philosopher that I like a lot, Blaise Pascal, um, he wrote a book called uh, Pensies or Thoughts and, and different things. He, and if this is in English, he spoke in French, translating English, try to make it as simple as possible. If we are always 
living in the future or the past. We are never living because we are never truly in the present. If we're always living in the past and we're always living in the future, then we are just not living because we are never actually in the present. And so we ended last week talking about a guy named Brother Lawrence who, through God walking with him, he learned to practice the presence of God even while he was doing dishes and it became holy and sacred space. And so that's, that's like last week and kind of where we, we left off and we said, as God is sovereign over time, therefore if you can't find joy and good and beauty in each season, then it points to something wrong in us. And if you can read these passages about time without trembling and without reverence because it talks about that God has ordered things such that we might fear Him. If you can read all of this about God's sovereignty over time and space and it doesn't cause you to tremble, it doesn't cause you to revere Him, then you might have be diminishing God's glory. You may not be rightly appropriating Him His honor that is due to His name. Because he's the God over time. Okay, so that's the context. So we get to 16, moreover. Now, let's look at today's passage. Moreover, so that's the context. He he ended it, there's nothing better that you enjoy your food and drink. And this is a gift of God. Pleasure, like it's a gift of God that you enjoy the season you're in. And food and drink and fellowship and everything good. But you don't. Because of sin, and that's frustrating. Now, he's coming in saying, Moreover, I saw under the sun that, look at this, in the place of justice. Now for us, that brings up, who is in charge of justice? Courts, politics, the church. In the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, doing what's right, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, literally children of Adam, Adam, children of Adam, that God is testing them. Now this is not like the ACT, like ABCD, you know, Scantrons. This is like the way you test gold. You put gold in a fire to test it to see if there's impurity inside of it. Testing them that they may see themselves are but beasts. That when God presses you with injustice and the fire of adversity, here's what comes out of us. Filth. Straight filth. For what happens to the children of Adam or children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. Now look, he's taking on the secular mindset. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no afterlife, only empiricism. What I can see with my five senses, he's looking and taking on your neighbor's secular worldview. And he's going to have a problem with it. What happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. We'll get to that in a bit. All go to one place, all are from the dust, into the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to theirs? Who knows? Right? This is a common question that many secular people bring to Christians. And I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who? Again, it's a question about a person. Who is the person who can bring him to see what will come after him? Who is the person that will be able to inform him about eternal life or what happens after death? You see, that is the begging question. Because left to himself, he does not have the capabilities to look beyond the grave. Man is limited. So he needs a person to reveal heaven to him. Do you see how this is begging for Jesus? And the point is that you would rejoice in your work. Right? Do you see that in the text? Everybody bring a Bible today? Or are you just on your phone on Twitter because Elon Musk bought it? All right, you got your, you got your Bible? That, look, read with me. That you, a man should rejoice in his work. Nothing better than that. Right? Okay. 
Now he's going to show you, here's the problem with living your whole life for that word. Again, this is why chap- these chapter divisions are not natural to the text. Okay, we added those so we can find things. I think it's appropriate to go through verse 3. Again, nothing better to enjoy work. I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. Okay, Pont, it's really hard to enjoy your work if you're a slave. Right? Like, it's really hard to enjoy life, you know, when the Germans are invading the border. The impressions that are done in the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort. By the way, we're going back to a person. There is some evil and injustice that happens in this life that no human being can fix for you. There's no one that can comfort you. On the side of the oppressors, here's what makes it worse, problem on top of problem. They got all the power. They got the money, the power, the position, and there was no one to comfort them. Again, notice here what has been repeated. There's no comfort. And I thought that the dead, who who are already dead, more fortunate than the living that are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been born and not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's just a real cheery sermon here, Solomon. Thanks for bringing this one to us. Okay, so here's what's going on. Evil deeds, so absolutely terrible and oppressive that it would be better that you're dead or that you had never been born. This is like trash talk from the 1950s. I'm going to hit you so hard, you're going to wish you were never born. This is the thing of you're experiencing something that wishes you had never been a part of it. Okay, so he's saying the context of this is in the place of where righteousness and justice should be, you see wickedness. And here's what that means. Because that's going to foster oppression and power plays and politics and all this stuff, there there is no way without God you're going to enjoy your life. There's no way you're going to enjoy it. How evil are we talking? Uses the word oppression. It says that he sees their tears it says no one to comfort and we put that we don't really think of comfort sometimes like that we think of comfort as like a bed or a really nice couch but do you realize that the holy spirit is called the comforter have you ever been so grieved by an evil done to you or done to someone that you love that there's nobody that can fix that You ain't got no neighbors, girlfriend, wife, husband, family member that could fix it because it was that bad. Have you been hurt that bad before? Have you seen something so violent, so evil, so messed up? There ain't no people under the sun that's fixing that. It's God and God alone. That's why the Holy Spirit called the comforter is that all true comfort comes from Him. That there's evil in the world... That God alone can comfort you from. So evil made worse because the oppressors are not like isolated bandits that are weak. It's that they're actually in the positions of power. And and what makes it worse is that there's times in your life where evil is going to be done to you and you have no power over it. Like you're, you're just... You're helpless. He repeats no comfort. And it's so evil that it'd be better to be dead than to experience it. Now look, go back to the previous part of the chapter. Everything's beautiful in its time. God's gift to man, it's his grace to man that he would enjoy anything at all. But it is the curse of sin to rob you of that enjoyment. 
Sin in others, sin in yourself. So, violence, oppression, suffering, evil keeps you from enjoying your toil, your eating, your drinking, your doing good, your taking pleasure in it. That's the language of chapter 3. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about racial injustice. We're talking about rape. We're talking about genocide. We're talking about war. Have I, have I, got, have I got everybody's yet? We're talking about killing the planet, whatever that means, whether that's nuclear war or you not recycling. We're talking about communism. We're talking about you having to fight for your right to party. Sexism. Southside Chicago. You, you realize that some sociologists argue there's more people in slavery today than there was 100 years ago. And that sex slavery happens at every single Super Bowl in America. Have you, have you ever turned on the news <laughs> and saw so much going sideways? Well, here's the thing. Verse 18 is going to say, this stuff is testing us like gold under pressure that the filth kind of comes out of us, that we may know our own wickedness. Now, that's curious here, right? It's not saying that we turn on the news to realize that the other political party is the evil people. It's not that we turn on the news and say, it's time we make a new Christmas movie where the Russians are the bad guys again. It's not that we turn it on and we point all the fingers elsewhere. It's the fact that as we're pointing at somebody else, there's more fingers pointing back at us. Do you notice? He has this conversation about wickedness. Then he goes and he says, God is testing them that they may know that they are beasts. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. Now, I get it. We're Baptists. We're experts in other people's sins. And novices at our own. Come on now. But this is what he's saying. When you see injustice in the world, it's meant to lead you to the reality that you yourself have sinned and been a part of the problem. Now, I don't know about you. But in my lost nature, I just don't jump to that. My lost nature is really good at saying, well, yeah, because those guys are idiots. But I don't like to come and think about where I follow, think about the word beast. I follow my flesh. Walk in the spirit, the New Testament says, that you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Do you, Christian, are you mature enough to discern at this point in your walk the difference between when you're doing things walking in the Spirit versus when you're doing things in your flesh? Let me ask you this. Have you started a sentence to talk to your spouse and knew as soon as it came out your mouth, it's like, that's not the Spirit. Come on now. You woke up and went to work. Talk about practice in the presence. That's a holy space, God-ordained space. And you started to get up and to go to work, and you knew you were going to work in your flesh, grumbling and complaining the whole drive. Or have you, walk, have you gotten up and said, God has called me to go here today and walked in the Spirit into the same place? We can either show up as redeemed people, or we can show up as beasts. I love what Galatians 5.15 says. Talking about the church, because this is most appropriate for us. Galatians 5.15 says, If you bite and devour each other, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Right? That's beast language in the church. If we treat one another like animals, we can't be surprised when we take a chunk out of each other. Beasts. In the Garden of Eden, we were over the beasts. But here, because of sin, we've lowered ourselves to them. 
Do you remember proud Nicodemus? Our sin makes us like animals. And God humbles the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now he goes on to talk here in a question about the spirit of man and beast. Who knows if it goes up or down or what's going on. Again, you have to remember in Ecclesiastes, he's taking on the secular worldview and then he's pushing the pressure points of it. We know in chapter 12, verse 7, he says that when a spirit leaves a man, it goes to God. He's not arguing that there's nothing after life. It's quite the contrary. He's looking at people who only believe that there is this life and you, if you only believe that there's this life, have a bigger problem with injustice than us who believe there's something that comes after. It's worse. That is, he's prodding the secular worldview without God, that of an atheist or agnostic, agnosco, there is no knowledge, someone that say, I don't know what comes after, that if you don't know what comes after, you cannot argue that you are any better than a rat. An even bigger problem. Without justice and judgment in eternity, the Bible says it's appointed for man to die and then comes judgment. We believe that because God has judgment at the end, ultimately nobody is getting away with anything. That we will be held accountable for every thought, word, and deed. Amen? Now, in one way, that terrifies us. But in light of the gospel and grace, knowing our sins are forgiven, it's liberating. But if you believe that it all ends at death, then ultimately, people are able to do heinous crimes. And, and there is no justice in the universe. Like, people can get away with things if there is no judgment after death. Do you see the problem that secular people have when there's no judgment and there's no eternity and you're just rats bound for a grave? you got a bigger problem. So, here's the thing. In Christianity, sometimes people push on us and they'll say, you know, if Christianity's true... What do you do with evil? What do you do with suffering? What do you do with oppression? I would argue this, church, and I've done it here from this pulpit before. Christianity has the greatest explanatory power for why evil exists. We love this conversation about evil because evil begs the question of sin. And when we start talking about sin, it's really easy for us to talk about our Savior. The Bible and Christianity has the greatest explanatory power for why evil exists injustice and oppression and suffering exist. But here's the problem at Solomon's pain. If you don't believe in God and you don't believe in the Bible, how do you explain evil? What do you do with injustice? How does it fit into your story? How do you explain it? And what they're coming up with, Solomon is pressing, is just going to be less than what the Bible says. So, Here's the thing, ignorance of what comes after your existence makes that existence worse, not better. Because there is no justice in the universe, and there is no vindication, and there is nothing that will be made right. There's no forgiveness, there's no grace, and there is no justice. And, and here, let me push this a little bit further. There's a problem with that for me, apologetics, because... If I was talking to your neighbor, or if you're lost in here and you're not a Christian, I would talk to you about it like this. Every one of us believes that justice exists. Every single one of us believes in some right and wrong. Now, we draw the line differently because we, we, don't, fall under, we, we don't fall under truth where God calls us to fall under truth. By the way, so like if you take away a Republican's right to bear arms... That's an injustice, right? And they're right to eat triple cheeseburgers. Have a great heart attack, okay? On the other side, right? The fact that guns exist breaks Democrats' hearts. And the fact, you know, for some vegan, if you eat meat, you are what's wrong with the universe, right? God forbid you don't recycle. 
What are we talking about here? Everybody has a concept of something that's right and something that's wrong. Go back a little bit further. If I'm just, let's just interact with it. Who here? Okay, who here had kids and had to set their kid down and be like, now look, somebody on the playground takes your toy, steals it. What I need you to do is scream at the top of your lung. That's not fair. Who here had to disciple and teach and indoctrinate their kid to yell, that's not fair? Anybody? You had to set them down and be like, this, this will run. Like, I never taught my kids the phrase, that's not fair. Ever. But somewhere in their soul, they just got it. Isn't it from the time we are born imprinted on us? Isn't it innate in us? You don't believe this. Let's do a couple tests here. When you go home today, if you've got more than one kid, I want you to allow one kid to not eat their food for lunch and they get ice cream. All the other kids, vegetables. As we talked of earlier, set them on the vegan path. Who here thinks that's going to go, go clean? Nobody's going to say nothing? James, you think you're getting the ice cream. That's why that's that. Nobody thinks that. I dare not say it. Get you and your wife ice cream and get her a little less. And don't even tell her why. She'll supply the reason. Injustice. Sign your kid up for fifth grade football. Okay? Other fifth graders, turn in your birth certificate. Make sure they're the right age. Then take them to a game down in Farmington where a fifth grader looks 32 years old with chest hair smoking a cigarette in between the games. And I promise you, parents in here, what's happening in there? Your justice indicators, it's going off. Right? It's my favorite one. And these are small. Th these are funny because we can't talk about the real ones. Five miles of traffic, 5,000 signs saying two lanes are about to become one. Backed up, you're late to where you have to be, your kids are crying in the back seat, you're lined up, and somebody passes 8,000 cars to cut in at the last second to single lane traffic. Tell me you don't write down their license plate and follow them home. Why? Did, did anybody have to teach you to have a concept of justice? No. You were born with it. And so when the atheist and the agnostic says this life is all there is and there is no justice in the universe, they disagree with MLK, who would say the arc of justice is long, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. God is going to make all things right. And there's something in us that when we hear that, we say, yes. And when we see a little kid beat up the playground bully, it inspires us, doesn't it? And when we see evil of rape and murder and abortion in the world, doesn't it motivate us to, doesn't it move us to want to do something about it? So we just test our hearts and we'll see this is explaining exactly what we got going on. And it's maybe why for entertainment, we have watched six or seven million court cases where they got the verdict wrong. And it just grinds us, doesn't it? Okay, so if that's the small ones, what do we do with war and large-scale injustice People in prison for their whole lives for crimes they didn't do. I, I served in Africa, in West Africa, and I had the opportunity. They allowed me to go into prisons. And m most every single person in these jails had nothing but shreds of clothing. And if family member or friends didn't bring them food, they starved to death inside the prison. And you're talking a room. The whole prison's probably the size of this room. And you're a hundred people just sleeping Shoulder to shoulder on top of each other. It's crazy in there. And you see, most of them are people that are thrown in there for speaking out against the dictatorship that ruled over them. 
And doesn't that move us that we want to do something about it? So here's the thing. If you ask a lot of people, go back to Ecclesiastes here. If you ask a lot of people, what is the meaning of your life? What is the purpose or the meaning of your life? My purpose and my meaning is to make the world a better place. What are we saying? There's injustice in the world, and I have made it my life's purpose to fix that. Now, there's something that should give us pause. One is, you realize that Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, who killed millions of people, also thought they were making the world a better place. That should give us a bit of a pause, and that's what he's going to talk about here. In the place of many people, of these systems that are meant to do righteousness, they do systemic evil. The best villains are those with good intentions apart from God. So we got to be careful when we as man try to fix things that God and God alone can fix. Now, that's not to say that we, we shouldn't advocate for what's better. Absolutely not. We just have to understand that a lot of times when people are getting into politics, they're taking that route because it's the best way to use your money for their bad ideas. And that it's dangerous. Come on now, listen to me. And we can call it social justice. We can call it ministry. We can call it whatever we want. But there is a danger for a bunch of people who can't seem to clean up their own room to think that they can clean up the whole world. That people that haven't dealt with their own filth and, and mess, to think that they can clear the mess up on a systemic level. Do you hear what I'm saying? He just is gonna, He's going to talk about how frustrating it is to fix things that are broken and beyond man's repairing. That's a, that's a thing that leads us in a way. Here's the problem that he's saying on top of the problem. The, the institutions that we want to use to fix evil in the world have in themselves evil. That in the place of justice is wickedness. Because we're in them. Do you hear me? And we just got to be careful, y'all, about putting too much faith in man. Careful. Now, I'm not saying at all that we should not build the church as healthy as possible or elect people who agree with Christian truth. By all means, fix the school board. Amen? Build great roads. Do great things. We just have to be careful when we put our faith in institutions and places of justice other than in Jesus. Because they are bound to have weeds. You hear me? And I would say this, and I think this is appropriate as well. That includes the church. Like, I love the church. I've given my life to serve the church. And to be involved in the church and to advocate for the church. And I believe with all of my heart that if a church walks with the Lord, we have less than the world does. I believe that. If we'll walk according to God's ways, we'll have less of the weeds than the world has. But we are not free from it by no means. And as a matter of fact, because the church is foundational for modeling to business and education and arts and government what righteousness looks like, we are attacked by the enemy more than they are. Amen or oh me. So we can't be caught off guard or surprised when attacks come or that there's failure inside of the church. I love you, but it's just we are not in this church Perfect. And the problem and the reason is all of us. So here's the thing. We're not getting rid of, in this church, attacks from the enemy. And we're not getting rid entirely of missing it, 
failing, screwing up, or making mistakes. It's just not going to happen. But what we can be a part of is minimizing those mistakes by as best we can walking with the Lord and walking with the Spirit. And what we can do is when we screw up, own it, repent, turn back to the Lord, and stay on mission for what He's called us to. I don't know what else to do. And I know that we're going to get incited that because there is even a little bit of sin in us, it hits the world different. When there's moral failure of a pastor, when there's division in the church, when there's issues, when there's gossip, here's what people are prone to say. Well, that's, I'm just getting rid of organized religion. And I would say that is the cheapest cop-out of all time. Because you've got no problem that the grocery store is organized. Matter of fact, you get upset if they literally move anything in the grocery store. You've got no problem with organized sports. You've got no problem with organized traffic laws. You've just got problems with people that break them. It's a cop-out because we love things that are organized. Why? Because our God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And we're stronger together than we are separated. And so we have to work it out. And we've got to deal with our own weeds in our own backyard. Do you, have you read the New Testament? People are always surprised when sexual immorality comes up in the church. Or people are always surprised when gossip comes up in the church. Or somebody is surprised when there's... Have you read the New Testament? Two-thirds of it is like the Apostle Paul saying, Greetings. Grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Please stop being idiots. Praying for you. Like, if we came to church every Sunday and we never had problems, but you read in the New Testament they had nothing but constant challenges, there would be an inconsistency there. But the same grace that they trusted to overcome theirs is the same grace and the same gospel we have to trust to overcome ours. Amen? Um, Let me say one more discouraging thing and then we're done. Uh, It's frustrating, right? It's frustrating every time you think about the term Washington, D.C., it's just frustrating. Or you think about moral corruption. or Like I read a thing that um, for Haiti, the Red Cross gained over six, or sorry, over half a billion, like $500 million for Haiti after uh, the devastation, earthquake, and storms that hit Haiti. Half a billion dollars, $500 million. And it reported that it built six houses. Which is like six more than Black Lives Matter built with much more money. And when we come to these institutions or nonprofits, like right now, we're heading into the holiday season, and isn't every business asking you to donate a dollar to the thing, like guilt tripping you into giving to an organization, you have no idea how they're going to spend that charitable money. Is that too soon? And isn't it frustrating every time you hear of embezzlement and disappointing and, and corrupting? Well, this is what Solomon is saying. He's saying, don't put your trust in them. Put your trust in in one who is able to comfort you beyond the grave. Put your trust in one who knows what comes after. Jesus said, he came down from heaven to show men the way. Right? Put your trust in one who is, there is no filth or shadow of turning with him. And, and here's the thing that maybe Solomon's saying from his vantage point. If Solomon, as wealthy as he is, if Solomon, as wise as the Bible says that he is, if Solomon, the king with all the power, he ain't got to go through a senate, he can appoint judges, he's got no gridlock, if he is saying that in his institutions, you realize the one writing this, talking about the places of righteousness, is the one who's ultimately king over it, and he's frustrated that he can't fix it. If him and his wisdom and his authority and his sovereignty looks over his courts and his places of righteousness and says, I just can't weed it out. What makes you think that you can vote your problems away? 
Come on now. You're limited in ways he wasn't limited. But here's the thing. We, st- mm. we can minimize it. Or we can grow it like cancer on steroids. But we lack what it takes to definitively root out evil. In us and in our systems and in our institutions. To definitively root it out, we just lack. And this is where the book of Ecclesiastes, from a silhouette, is begging us to consider Jesus. It's begging for Jesus, isn't it? Solomon is thirsty for Jesus. Solomon is starving for justice. He's longing for evil to be dealt with. And is that not the message of the cross? Where God dealt with sin. Evil and injustice he sees in places of righteousness leads him to want Jesus more, not less. Does it do that for you? I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to talk about the gospel and take communion. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. God, we long for things to be made right where no tear will dim the eye. Where you will put an end to all evil and injustice and wickedness and suffering. But God, we know by your sovereign care, in the meantime, you are using those to reveal our own sin, our own filth, that you're testing them by us, that we might know how much we desperately need you. God, more than the U.S. government needs you, I need you. More than this church needs you, I need you, Lord. More than the Supreme Court needs you, Lord, I need you. And so, Father, would you come and deal with our sin so we might better go out into the world and deal with the injustices that we see there. Do that by the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Everybody said, amen. We come to a time of communion.